0: So last week, step into some scripture together. Last week, um, I started last week's message by um, showing you a photograph of the Moroa Forsyth High School football team praying. And um, it was kind of cool. I talked about how the kids up there had prayed over one of their teammates who uh, got injured. And the first response was to go pray. And that four of the kids in that group were from Moreau, were from our church, and so we were kind of celebrated that. Well, let me tell you, there's a wee bit of crosstown rivalry. And there were a few of you that weren't real thrilled that I only showed Moreau Forsyth High School kids praying. I heard from just a few of you saying, wait, 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 our kids pray too. For example, look at this photo. That's the palms of Mount Zion praying. That showed up in my inbox this week, and apparently. <laughs> So, you know what I'm liking? I'm kind of liking this crosstown rivalry that I inadvertently started of showing of how the kids from First Christian Church are praying, because we got kids from First Christian Church in that group as well. And I want to remind you that we are a community church, and we have people from all across this community or great radius attending here. It does my heart good. That we got kids in all those high schools serving Christ. And willing to step up like the young lady who leads that prom squad and say, hey, can I lead you guys in prayer? And that people, that she's from First Christian Church. Does it get any better than that? It doesn't, does it? So it's good stuff. So last week I used the photo. For, if you want to send me a photo, I'll see if I can't bring it in. I'll see if I can't move it into a, a sermon a introduction, okay? Because I was using it last week as a catalyst for the way in which we wanted to circle the church, we've been saying about how we are going to circle our stuff, then we simply circle the church. And thanks, lad, thanks for being part of that big endeavor last week to actually walk around the building uh, and to get your feet a little bit wet in the grass, some of you did. And uh, great photos of what we saw, and more so than the photos, is the, the way in which you responded to saying, "Hey, I'll pray. I'll pray for our church." Today, we're taking the circle just a little bit wider, and we're saying, Can we circle the city? You have this in your bulletin. I hope you've seen it already. I'll come back to it in just a few minutes. It's all part of our understanding of what God's called us to do as a congregation, and that we are to literally reach into the lives of 10% of our community. There are 100,000 people who live within a 15 mile radius of our congregation. And we're saying that in the next 10 years, we want to. We want to see 10,000 people come to know Jesus Christ. And what are we going to do about that? How are we going to get that started? That's what this series is all about, that we're going to start that whole project of 10 by being people of prayer. And so I want to show you and tell you the story this morning of a man who had a city in mind when he was praying, a city that was in great desperation, it's found in scripture, And uh, what happened when he prayed and then put some work behind those prayers. If I could get you to think of what life would be like in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. What do you know about 586 B.C.? Anything? Let me see if I can remind you of some history. Up until 586 B.C., starting at 1000 B.C., the people of Israel had been um, quite prolific and very industrious, and they were a military and economic powerhouse in the world. But by the time you get to 586 B.C., the people in Jerusalem and the communities surrounding Jerusalem had walked away from walking with God. They weren't following him anymore. And God's hand of protection and blessing had been removed. More or less, they just wandered out from underneath it. And God said, I can't protect you in the way you used to to have protection. And so the result was the the Israelite um, military began to come down and their economic power began to come down and the Babylonian Empire began to increase. And in 586, the Babylonians wiped out all the people in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, here's what happened. They came down, came in, and they burned down the gates. They tore the walls down. And they looked throughout the community of the Israelites who were left over, and they said, who are the leaders? Who are the leaders? Who are the educators? Who are the artisans? Who are the priests? Who are the business leaders? And anybody that had any sort of um, leadership value in the community, they were taken as slaves some 900 miles away over to Babylon. And the people who were left behind in Jerusalem were leaderless. They didn't have the education. They didn't have the, the, the city was ruined. They didn't have the economic engine in place anymore. And it was a, an extreme struggle for those in Jerusalem. And you can imagine, it was an extreme struggle for those who were torn apart from their families and sent to Babylon. 50 years later, 536 B.C., The Babylonians by that time had become used to having the Jews live among them. And so they said in 536 BC, we're willing to make a change. We're willing to say, okay, those of you who came to us as slaves 50 years ago, you can go home. Go home to Jerusalem. We don't need you anymore. But the problem was in those 50 years, all the people who had been transported out of Jerusalem as slaves, they'd all died. If they were 20 or 30 years of age, 15 years of age, when they were carted over there, the average lifespan in those days was less than 40 years. So most of them were dead. And the people who were Jewish now living in Babylon, that was the only home they'd ever known. This is a second and third generation later now. And so they're saying, well, you want us to go home? This is our home. We don't want to go home to Jerusalem. This is our home. Some went, but many didn't. And the ones who didn't go, Began to move up. They were up, upwardly mobile people, if you will. And they began to move upward in society, life, and culture. And that kept on till where we're going to read today in the book of Nehemiah, 444 B.C. And by the time we get to 440 B.C., the people who were Jewish who were living in Babylon, they're now, that group of people there and their families have been there for 140 years. By that time, they are more Babylonian than they are Jewish. Does that make sense? And so what happened? Read with me in Nehemiah chapter 1, and we'll see how one of those Jewish men living in Babylon responded. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. Take it, and I say take it. If you don't have a Bible, take it home as our gift to you, all right? You can see the page numbers. It's about a third of the way through the Bible. It's right there. You can see it, okay? Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Halkaliah. So this is Nehemiah, a Jewish man living in Babylon, writing, okay? You all with me? Nehemiah chapter 1. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. So he's got some kinfolk of some sort who have gone to Judah, who have gone to Jerusalem, and they've come back to Babylon now with some... uh, with some news from Babylon, from pardon me, from Jerusalem. Though he may not have been there for ever, and the family that he's part of left 140 years, ago, excuse me, left 140 years ago. So Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, "Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Here's why." Why are they in trouble and disgrace? Well, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. To that God he's praying. To that God. That God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. So here he is. He's in Babylon praying for the people back in Jerusalem. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. And then he recites what happened and what was going to happen had been, Moses had said, if you don't follow, me, follow God, it's going to be pretty rough. Remember the instruction your servant you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. 586 BC, they proved to be unfaithful to God and they would have been scattered all the way to Babylon. But God had also said, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people who you redeem by your great strength and mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to, to this prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. God, I'm praying about the people of Jerusalem. I've heard about their story. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And you go, okay, so he's talking about himself. I want to have success in the, and favor in the presence of what man? And in a few brief words, in one little sentence, he tells us who he is. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. He's talking about having a chat with the king. Now we've read all that, but if you don't read the last sentence, it doesn't make it, the full story is not known. When he says, I'm cupbearer to the king, in our culture we have no idea what that is. But the cupbearer in the ancient world was the taste tester, or you could put it this way, he was poison control for the king. Think about ancient world. You've got all these different little kingdoms, and Babylon was a big kingdom, and you've got palace intrigue and coups that could take place at any moment, and assassination was often the best way in which you could make it rise up in the, in the family line, if you will, and so the king was always afraid that he's going to be knocked off. I mean, he's going to be, he's going to be killed, and one of, the way, one of the ways in which he could be killed would be poisoned by food, and so the king would take his most trusted person and say, you're going to eat my food before I eat it. Isn't that a lovely position to be in? You go, okay, so you're going to get a lot of lovely food. But when the time comes when they want to poison the king, guess who's going to go, who's, guess who's going to go first? The taste tester, right? The cupbearer. And so Nehemiah is in this position of great trust because the truth be told, if, they were able, if somebody wanted to kill the king, all they would have to do would be bribe Nehemiah. And the king knows that. So the the cupbearer to the king is a man of great trust, great prominence, way up in society, way up in the culture. And this man who is way up in the culture learns that his kinfolk back in Jerusalem are in great trouble. It's now 140 years since they had all that problem in Jerusalem and all these people got carted to Babylon and his family, his grandfather, grandfather, grandfather was carted there. But now he's way up in the culture. But he still has this sense, man, I, I owe some, something to those people back home. It's not my home, but it's home. You know, it's, it's like, you know your last name, I would suspect. And do you know anything about the, fam- the, the national origin of that name? You go, well, you know, this is a German name or this is an Irish name. And there's, you know, there's some sort of kinship with, well, I'm, you know, my, my grandfather's grandfather came over on a ship in 1837 from Ireland. And consequently, there's always just a little bit of, could I, could I ever go back to Ireland and see where the family came from? My great-grandfather on my mother's side was a missionary in New Guinea at the turn of the 20th century, was there as the century turned over. My grandmother was born in New Guinea. I've never been to New Guinea, but I'll tell you this. Whenever it pops up in the news... I'm always listening just a little bit closer than most of you because most of you haven't got a clue where New Guinea is. You go, Is that in Africa? No, it's not in Africa. It's a little island north of Australia. Part of it belongs to Indonesia, and part of it belongs to Australia. Belongs is the wrong word. They're individual nations, but they're connected that way. And so you go, I have no idea where New Guinea is. Well, I do because there's something within me that goes, Well, that place was important in our family's story, and we have photos. <laughs> when you think about this in our living room we have photos of my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather back from the 1870s in New Zealand pardon me, in New Guinea and go, why do we have those? I don't really know why we have them on the wall we didn't know those people but there's a connection there, right? this is what Nehemiah is there he's, he's got this affinity with what's going on but look at how he responds to this affinity of the people of Jerusalem what happens? If you were to map the story of what we've read already, he hears the story and he weeps. He starts just by taking it in. And then, after he hears the story and weeps, then he prays. And then, as we get into chapter two, he goes. In other words, he chose a non-insulated approach to the needs of people who were not really, he didn't know him. And there was no need for him to, I mean, he's way up in the culture. Does it really matter what happens in Jerusalem to him? Not really, but he has, is a man who says, the needs of other people will impact me. And off he goes. The straight line from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem is 500 miles But there's no way to fly in those days. He's on the back of a horse or walking. We believe Nehemiah was actually on the back of a horse. 900 miles. Can I tell you, that's a lot of saddle soreness. That's a lot of saddle soreness. But he was willing to take it on based on his understanding of the need. So he goes off to Jerusalem and he does an inspection. Chapter 2, all right? Chapter 2, verse 11. Get your Bible out. Chapter 2, verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. In other words, I'm the only guy that's got the horse, all right? By night, I went through the valley of gate toward the, toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. they have been destroyed for more than 140 years. The people of Jerusalem had lost their will to take care of their city. It had been stripped from them. I'm reminded of when Leslie and I were in Poland in the late 1970s into the 80s. You could talk to the people of Poland. They'd gone through World War II. They had then had been invaded by the Soviets. And if you could talk to them about national pride, it just seemed to be a little, it wasn't where you would expect it to be. It had been stripped of them, from them. You go to Poland today, now my understanding is full of patriotism and Polish flags fly everywhere because the wall has come down, they're free people. But the people of Jerusalem for 140 years had not had any pride in their city. And if you read on, Nehemiah goes from place to place and he finds settings where the city is in need of repair and there's this great story that happens. He says, I'm going to help them fix Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he organizes work parties, teams that are going to repair. You guys are going to... Can we? I'll help you get set up over here and this group will get set up over here. It's an interesting, uh, interesting story about leadership. Here's this official. He has all kinds of authority. Where he, can, he could have stayed in Babylon and said, somebody go fix that. But instead, it wasn't you do this and you do that and you take care of that. No, I'll... I'll get engaged, but I love what he does first. Before he even goes, what does he do? He prays. Look again, Nehemiah chapter one, verse four. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept and For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then we have this prayer that he brings to God. I like this guy. You know why I like him? He knows how to weep with those who weep. And he knows that before you do anything, maybe ask God what you should do. He weeps with those who weep. Do we do that? Do we do that for our community? There are places in our community where the walls are broken down. And places in our community where you've got generation upon generation of people who have not done things right. And who've struggled. I pray that... God would cause our hearts to be sensitive to the needs of our own community where the walls are broken. I, 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 I hope that no one in this room would be in the place where you say, well, I've kind of become callous to the needs of my community. Surely there aren't any of us in the room who would say, well, you know, those people over in that neighborhood, if you think about it, they really have had the same education, the same opportunities in education that I've had They could be living in my kind of house. They could be choosing the upwardly mobile life as I am. They obviously are choosing to live there for whatever reason. It's their fault. And if they really wanted to make their lives different, if they had only, they've obviously chosen not to walk with Christ because look at the results. I am where I am because of what I chose to do. Surely we don't have that kind of attitude, do we? I remember that I am where I am because of the grace of God. And I'm quite aware that if the trajectory of my life had been off just one mark 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or even just half a a mark, I wouldn't be where I am today. Pastor Brian has given us this illustration before, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. You know, um, he grew up on a golf course. Don't ever golf against Brian Talty. can I tell you that? You're going to lose, all right? He grew up on that golf course. And he tells me, because I don't fully get this, but he says, if you get the right swing and you get your arm back in exactly the right posture and you bend your legs the right way and you hit that ball smack on, you're gonna, that, that ball is going to go straight down the, straight down the fairway. But he also says that if you, if you, if you just flick your wrist just that, just that much at the wrong moment, you bend your knee at the wrong moment just that much, that, that club when it hits the ball, while it's gonna look the same as if you'd done it correctly, that, that smidgen of change makes the difference between the ball going straight down the fairway or a Wayne Kent ball over in the rough. It's really nice over in the rough. I've visited it over there before. <laughs> What if the trajectory of your life had been off that smidgen at the wrong moment? Is it feasible there are people in our community who their lives were off that smidgen 15 years ago, 45 years ago, or that smidgen in their mother's lives 60 years ago? I'm calling us as a congregation to pray for our, com- our community, to circle our city today. Let's be people who see like Nehemiah did, who hear and look, respond to our needs by pray- to the needs of our community by praying. There are thousands of people in this community who don't know Jesus Christ, thousands. So I'm inviting you, take this out, will you please? Just kind of let a little publicity here today for what we're doing this afternoon. There's a congregational meeting our semiannual congregation at 3.30 this afternoon, but then at 5 o'clock, we're doing this. Seven places around the community where you'll find a staff member and an elder. The places where we're going, those businesses have agreed that we can meet in their parking lots and pray. And we're going to invite you to join us this afternoon. Take the half hour today and let's pray for our community. We read that Nehemiah, when he heard these things, sat down and wept, and for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The needs of our community warrant some prayers, friends. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our children. We need to pray for adults. We need to pray that families within our community would have stable lives. Uh, I want you to pray, for example, about marriages. And uh, I've asked Rob and Robinson to join us here today. Uh, Coming up, guys. Uh, to help explain to you something that we're doing in the lives of, of couples and marriages. Uh, these guys are involved in a ministry called Marriage Mentoring. And um, maybe one of, us, one of you guys could explain to us all what Marriage Mentoring is.
1: So it's a program where married couples come together. We take some time to get some education. <clears throat> we actually learn some problem-solving techniques. We learn how to talk to each other. We learn how to fight fair. And then we take couples who are seeking some guidance. So don't think of us as counselors; think of us as coaches. We look at the problems you might be having, and we say, "How can we tackle this together between us and another couple and God?" How'd you get involved?
2: Well, uh, first Christian brought it to the congregation and announced that uh, you know we were going to offer this training. Uh, we're looking for folks to become mentors and read, and said, "Hey, we're doing it." And I said. Yeah, we're not. And uh, of course, we are married. And And here here you are doing it. Yeah. (laughs) Of course, you won because we are married. uh. (laughs) But so that's really how we got involved. But the truth of the matter is, the reason I had that hesitancy is because I I, I was inside saying, "Well, who am I, or who are we, to tell somebody else how to to run their marriage?" If you
0: think about it, from from what Rob is saying, it's a little bit arrogant to say, at, at first glance, "Well." watch how we do it and you'll learn something. That's not the intent of marriage mentoring by any means. But if you think about it also, that kind of applies to us as a congregation. We're saying, hey, we're going to reach 10% of the com- of the community. That's a- if we don't do this correctly, that could sound really arrogant, right? That's why I say if we're going to do this right, we have to start with prayer, friends. We have to start with humility and a- with a-, a-, a position before God that says, God, everything that we are, we surrender to you. And whether or not this program succeeds or fails is not based on us or our abilities, but based on your grace. So how how are things going?
1: Well, in discussing this, we feel like there's two really strong positive results in our case that came to be. So when we talked about this with the couple we're mentoring, we just wanted to make sure it was okay that we share a little bit of their story and find out what they're comfortable talking about. And they both felt like it was important to say that each of them, when they started the program, had one foot out the door they were headed down the path to divorce. And this is a couple who had lived next door to each other since they were teenagers, have a little child. So this would have been devastating for this particular family. Now through the mentoring program, through um, prayer together and working the system, she's amazed that she said she never thought she'd see her husband praying with her. They are together in church more and they have no intentions in the near future of divorcing or separating. So that, in and of itself, is incredible. Yeah.
2: And, and certainly not by anything that Rena and I did. We're just the vehicle to get God's message and uh, fed into their lives.
1: So in terms of us, it, we were really kind of surprised because we didn't expect – we had a pretty strong marriage, um, not being arrogant. But you take a survey, and the survey kind of outlines different things in a marriage, communication.
2: It, uh, it, it tells you what points during the program that you're going to focus on that are high impact, that are causing tensions?
1: So for us, the answer was, we got a prayer dog.
0: Wait, wait, so I just, so we want a prayer dog, dog, D-O-G. All right, I have a dog that needs lots of prayer.
1: <laughs> Ours does at times too. Okay. So this little guy, Rob got him, uh, rescued him for me for my birthday this past summer. And the reason I call him our prayer dog is because regardless of how tired we are after our children go to sleep, And I'm not kidding. I will be in bed with the covers on. He is standing on my chest (laughs) because he wants to walk. And so we have learned when we circle our little cul-de-sac, we have our house in sight the whole time, that this is when we pray. And the nights that he absolutely insists we go outside, we don't think there's anything really going on, but together we we talk about it with God and we problem solve. And and so he's our little prayer dog now. And that's impactful
2: because one of the things that the program – emphasizes is that the couples pray together I mean whatever whatever you're trying to solve you know it, it's important that husband and wife pray together and pray about the same at the same time and and that and walking the dog for us was kind of our ritual uh pre-kids that's that's when we prayed together and, and kind of recat rehashed the day and that kind of thing so when we had kids we really fell out of fell out of that uh, ritual routine and uh, the prayer
0: dog has
1: Right. And we were asking our couple to pray together. So let me not ask you this. ourselves.
0: The people who are involved, can they have specific ages? No, it, it, it
2: can be any age, Wayne. Uh, uh, it's for couples that have been married 45 years, that have a strong marriage, uh, that want to make a good marriage great. And it's uh, a component of the program for newlyweds, or you know, not, excuse me, not newlyweds, but engaged couples to be wed. Um, so there's a kind of some pre-course work and for couples that are remarried that maybe have a blended family uh, There are no age restrictions.
0: And if anybody's interested how do they get engaged with you guys uh,
2: It's pretty easy. We try to make it as uh, Available as possible, but you're more than welcome to talk to Rhiannon or myself um, There's information on our get connected wall out front by the uh, by the front doors um, on the, uh, on it you'll find will and Terry Taylor's contact information. They are the program sponsors. There are also folks here at the church, or you can talk to uh, any of the pastoral team.
0: Can you thank these guys for acting on our behalf? Thanks, guys. And I understand, uh, thanks, guys, I understand that, you know, when we talk about the life of our community, it's it's more than marriages. There are some of you in the room today who go, I wish I was married, or I used to be married, and it just fell apart. I My point is, there are all sorts of needs in our community that I want to see us as a congregation, by God's grace, step into. Not from a position of arrogance, but from a position of, can we walk this out with you? Because if you think about it, that's exactly what happened with Nehemiah. Over in chapter 4, flip over to chapter 4, and uh, look at verse 10. Here's what happened. He gets all the parties together. And as they get together, there are some people who say, we're never going to get this project done. There are some who are opposed to the project. There are actually people outside the city who want, who want the Israelites to be killed. So you have in verse chapter four, verse 10, the people in Judah said, the strength of the labor is giving out. There's so much trouble. We can't be rebuild the wall. The enemies say, before they know it or see us, we're right there among them. We'll kill them, put an end to the work. And then the Jewish people who live near the enemies say, yeah, they've come and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they'll attack. I mean, it's, it's a mess. It's hard, hard work. And you know what Nehemiah does? He gets the people in Jerusalem into groups of families. And he says, this family here, you're going to be responsible for repairing this section of the wall and you guys are this section. And I want you to take your your workers and your family and divide it in half. And half of you guys need to build and the other half need to stand ready, guarding the work that's being done. Get your armor out. And when, when the laborers get tired, switch off. So then the soldiers will start laboring and the the laborers will start guarding. This idea of putting the city back together was not just rebuilding, but it was rebuilding, putting families together and saying, let's let's guard what we're doing. Friends, as we go out into our community in the months ahead and we say we want 10% of the community to know Jesus Christ, we can do all kinds of things. We can take on all sorts of projects to rebuild the wall, but unless we guard what we do with prayer, it's going to be a mess. But if we do, we're going to see exactly what happened in the city of Jerusalem. Look at chapter 7 and see a list of names. It's a list of all the people who after the city was rebuilt, they rebuilt, they all moved into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city that's a mile square. 50,000 people moved, moved into Jerusalem. Catch that. 50,000 people moved into the city. They built 736 houses. They brought with them 245 mules and 6,700 donkeys. What would happen? What would happen if by God's grace? we could impact our city to see the need for 50,000 people to move to Decatur? Do you think the economy would turn around? Do you think our schools would have an opportunity to say, hey, we're gonna do things in a greater way? Do you think our community leaders would say, hey, we're stepping up to the plate in new ways? What would happen if 736 houses had to be built in the city of Decatur? Wouldn't it be good stuff? You know what else happened in the story, even more powerful? There was a priest in the city by the name of Ezra, and they built a big high wooden platform, it says in the book of Nehemiah, and they put him on the top, and he began to read scripture. And the result was, as he read scripture, the whole city chose to worship God. The whole city chose to worship God. Nehemiah started with a city. He prayed and the city was restored and the whole city reconnected with God. And so I got to tell you, friends, I'm not too worried if Mount Zion, the Palm Squad or the Morro Forsyth High School football team get the credit as the catalyst for our church praying and what may come behind that. But I do know this. I want all of our community to worship God. I want to see people in prayer circles and I want to see us as a congregation rebuild our city as we pray and pray as we rebuild. Let me explain it this way very quickly of what we're not going to do. From the last nine years, Doug Harvey and I have been on the air on Wednesday nights on Direct Line, And we've had all kinds of cool things happen on the show. We've done now hundreds of shows, if you think about nine years of a weekly show. And we've had hundreds, if not at this point, thousands of guests, many of them local people. You know, like we recently, this past week we had... Tim Kowalczyk on the air with us. He's an expert on the Middle Ages. He teaches, uh, he's an assistant prophet Milliken in the history department. He's also the teaching pastor at Westminster Presbyterian. We've had him, we've had all kinds of other pastors on the air. We've had community leaders, every, all the superintendents of the schools. We've had, this week we also had um, The uh, woman by the name of Joni Keyes, who's the head of Special Olympics for the city, and her telling us about how 600 athletes, special needs athletes, are coming to town uh, for an event. So there's all kinds of things that we learn about. And we also have many politicians who show up. Uh, It's free airtime for them, if you will, and they get to explain what they want to see happen in the city. And every time that we have a community leader that comes on that's responsible for a particular area of endeavor within the city, I'll say to them, what can we pray about? I have never, ever had any one of them say, don't pray. Isn't that amazing? None of them. They may not all be people of faith, but they're all willing to say, well, this is a place where if there is a God, God could really work. Except for one guy. Didn't really know how to respond. He was running for city council. um, And I'm not going to tell you what it is. It's a number of years ago, so you won't be able to figure this out. But um, I said to him, so uh, tell us your faith story. And his, this was his answer. He said, "My grandfather served in World War II." Now I, I'm looking at the guy, going, "Your grandfather serving in World War II has absolutely nothing to do with your faith. You can tell me that you don't have faith. I'm okay with that. But to say that your grandfather served in World War II and that's your faith story is a little bit. You weren't even alive. How could that anyway?" So I. I came at it a different way and said, so tell me about how faith might interplay in your life. And he goes, well, my grandfather served in World War II. And I, I'd kind of had it to hear, I thought, because had, we'd had politicians you know, whatever. And I just said, you know, that's not a faith story. That's a story about your grandfather's patriotism. He says, well, he was a Methodist. And I go, okay. <laughs> okay, so he was probably a man of faith too. I get that, but what... And I said, and I asked him twice more, what about your faith story? And both times he came back and said, My grandfather served in World War II. He didn't win the election, thankfully, because he couldn't answer the question. It would have been fine to me if he'd said, I don't don't believe in God. Fair enough. You You can take that option. Here's my point on that. Let us as First Christian Church never be so uninformed or spiritually clueless. First Christian Church, God calls us to be far more spiritually mature than that gentleman. We are called to be a praying church. We are called to be a church that says, what will God do in us and through us for our community? I don't know all what that is yet, but I'm not going to say, well, just because somebody did something back in the 1940s counts for today. God's calling us I look forward to seeing you at these events this afternoon, 5 o'clock. Would you stand together, please? The worship team is going to come lead us in a song that I think puts this all in place. And I look forward to seeing you participate fully. Let's pray together as they come, all right? Lord, today we're going to circle our city. And Lord, we don't want to do it from a position of arrogance. And Lord, even that story of that man and his grandfather, and I, I don't want him to be arrogant about that, as crazy as that scenario was, Lord. We want to be a congregation that hears you, that responds to your call in our lives. We, we, we believe that you're the God of this. You, you want to be the God of this city. Not us lording it over anyone in any way, but us being used as your servants to rebuild walls and to guard and to protect and to provide new life for families and marriages and for people to know you. We pray, Lord, that you would hear our prayers. In the name of Jesus.